If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 17. Um, I was actually going to preach on something completely different up until about 6 o'clock last night. Uh, and I had the message done. It was complete. I was ahead of time. Uh, Luke was actually going to preach this Sunday and just some circumstances came up that didn't allow that. And so I was excited kind of about like, wow, I get to preach and we're not going through a book. What am I going to preach on? And I thought, this is what we're going to do. I prepared and had it ready and I'm like about six o'clock. I'm like, no, nah, that's not what the Lord wants me to share. So I had to do an audible and change this up. And so, um, and this is much better than what I was going to tell you before. So be happy that I changed it up. Um, but this morning, what I want to ask you is this. What troubles you? What troubles you? Don't say it out loud. Just think to yourself. What troubles you? Like on a day-to-day basis, what is it that troubles you? Is it your relationship status? Is it the mistakes of your past? Is it not knowing what's coming in the future? Is it a circumstance you're in? Is it finances? Is it your schedule? Is it family issues? School? Month? I mean, what is it? Because you have troubles. We all do. And we can all put on a smile and whatever else, but all of us have troubles and issues and things and fears that we have. And so I want to ask again, what is it that troubles you? And this is important. And the next question that you have to ask after what troubles you, and you've got that thing that you put there, this is what troubles me. Here's the next question, why? Why does it trouble you? Why not just, ah, no big deal, I'll just do it, you know, forget about it, move on with your life. Why does that thing keep troubling you? <laughs> Why is it there? Like, what is it about your moral code or your own understanding that, that makes this thing a trouble in your life? When it's probably a pretty common theme, thing that you're going through. Other people have gone through it. So why does it trouble you? And then the other question after that is, if you kind of know what troubles you and why, then what are you going to do about it? Like, what are you going to do about the thing that troubles you and why it troubles you? Because see, if you don't get the questions right, if you just start doing stuff and trying to solve problems and you haven't even defined what really the trouble is, and you haven't defined why you have the trouble, you're just going to wear yourself out. And exhaust yourself and be chasing things like the wind. The the Bible says that people chase the wind. It's like just whatever, wherever I go, wherever I feel. And in the end, you end up with more troubles and you know even less why you have them (laughs) in a bigger mess. And so what I want to look at this morning is I want to look at what happened with the Apostle Paul when he was troubled. This is a story is in the book of Acts chapter 17. And we find the Apostle Paul, and remember who Paul is. Paul is someone who grew up with very little trouble. He grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth. He grew up, and then not only did he grow up that way, but he became one of the strongest religious leaders of his day. He was a Pharisee. This guy was at the top of the food chain. He was actually a Jew who was a religious leader and Pharisee in the temple who also had Roman citizenship, which made him like even greater than almost any other Jew of his day. Like he was at the top of like, there's no way Paul could have any troubles because why would he have any troubles? He's got everything. He's, he's a citizen of the greatest country on earth at that time, Rome. Under a religion that's protected in the Roman Empire and actually King Herod built them a temple because they were so kind of tolerated and put up with. And beyond that, he's at the top of the food chain of those people because he's the Pharisee. And if you know anything about Paul, Paul's life was turned upside down because when Christianity came, when Jesus came from heaven to earth and revealed himself and said, I'm the Messiah that the Bible and that all the world has been looking for, Paul rejected that message and he started killing people who believed that message. And Paul literally went to the government of Rome and went to his Jewish government and fought for permission to murder Christians as a terrorist. That's the guy we're reading about here in this passage. And when he came face to face with the reality of who Jesus was, Paul left everything to follow him. He gave up all of that and he said, 
I give it all up for the surpassing greatness of just knowing Jesus. There's nothing greater than that. No Roman citizenship, no amount of political power, no amount of wealth, none of it is worth just knowing, you ready for this? What the world's about and what all this trouble is and what's the meaning behind it all. Paul says there's nothing greater. And so, this is where we pick ourselves up in the book of Acts. Remember, Acts is after Jesus has come back to life. He's come to earth. He's lived a perfect life. This was what was prophesied or future told throughout all the Bible. He lives a perfect life. The God-man, 100% God, 100% human, dies when we should die, is resurrected, comes back to life. Every other religious leader is still dead in the grave. He came back to life, wandered around for over 40 days, making himself known and showing that he was still alive. Crazy, right? Then he leaves, he's transfigured, and then we have the rest of this history of his followers going out and telling, and Paul saying, I'm going to kill him, and then Paul being transformed. And now Paul is going out. This is his second missionary journey. So this is the second time to Wyoming, okay? Not the first time, second time. This is the second missionary journey of Paul that he's gone out on. He went on his first missionary journey. It went pretty well, but he was also, you know, they tried to kill him a few times, and One of the guys that traveled with him abandoned him, and that's why he's going on a second one and left that guy behind. Troubles. So Paul has all these troubles in his first missionary journey, but he still says it's worth it to go again, even though there were all these troubles. Like, I know God's going to be faithful. So Paul is on his second missionary journey. When you read the book of Acts and you read chapter 16, they go to two cities He goes to Thessalonica, which we have two books, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. He goes to Thessalonica, and then he goes to the Bereans. And in both of those circumstances, it doesn't go well. He has all kinds of trouble. They they try to kill him in Thessalonica, literally try to kill him. And then when he goes to Berea, and he's working with the Bereans, he has a great ministry there. And then the Thessalonians, they come to Berea to try to get them to kill him. This is what's happening. They're chasing Paul around. So... Paul's friends are like, we got to get you out of here. You are so controversial. We need to get you out. So they take him and they literally drop him off in Athens. They just drop him off. They're like, here you go. See ya. We're going back. And they, they leave Paul alone in a foreign city. Everywhere Paul goes, Paul says things he shouldn't say and he's almost killed. And they're like, you'll be fine here in this foreign culture with all these foreign gods and idols and everything else. We'll just leave you here. So that's where we pick up the story. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled. Let me ask you, when is it that your spirit gets the most troubled? When you're waiting with nothing to do. Right? When you're sitting there and you're like, what should I do? I could study. I could clean the house. Could make dinner instead of just eating stuff out of a can. I could watch a show. I could, I could, I could, I could. And then all the troubles start coming and you go, and I'm not going to do any of it because it's all just meaningless. (laughs) And then it piles up because by the end of the week, I still haven't cleaned. I still haven't eaten well. I haven't done anything I need to do, right? So Paul is waiting in Athens, and it says his spirit troubled. Now stop there, because you're reading on to see what his spirit was troubled about. Don't do that. Just ask yourself, if you're in a foreign city being dropped off after you've been tried, like they've tried to kill you twice, what would be troubling you in this moment? What would be troubling your heart if you've surrendered your whole life, you've given up everything, your own family hates you, you've left the religion of your your forefathers, kind of. It's the fulfillment, but you're not doing the Jewish religion anymore. You understand that God has completed that covenant of the old covenant. You have all, you've been dropped off by your friends. They're going back to do the ministry you started, and you're sitting. What would what would be the things running through your mind as you're waiting? Can I just tell you? It's probably not what running is running through Paul's mind. Because here's what it says. When he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul has been beaten. 
Paul has been shipwrecked before. Paul has had all these problems in his life. He's left everything. He's lost everything for the surpassing greatness of serving God. He went from being a terrorist to being someone who's been transformed and is giving his entire life and even sometimes refuses to even take money from the church because he doesn't want to look like he's using them. So he makes tents on the side so that he can just say, hey, I'm one of you. I'm just here to serve and make Jesus known to you. Like this is Paul. And when he's in the middle of trouble being dropped off in a foreign city, his heart while he's waiting is so focused on others. He's thinking about the idolatry and the fact that people don't know Jesus. And it's troubling him. He can't get away from it. I mean, he's supposed to be here in Athens kind of taking a sabbatical, taking a break, right? Like, just lay low. We'll come back and get you. And Paul's looking around. He's like, I can't take this. Somebody's got to talk to these people. Somebody's got to tell them. That somebody has to tell them that these idols you're worshiping is not the true God. Like, like Paul is just eaten up inside. Why? Because he's given his full life to this. Listen, what eats you and me up inside will show us what we really give our life to. Let me repeat that. What eats us up inside will show us what we really are trying to give our life to. It'll show us almost every time. What's eating you up inside You'll see that thing that is your idol. That thing that, well, if I just had this, things would be better. If I just had that problem, this trouble solved, then things would be okay. See, Paul doesn't even go to any of those things. Paul's looking around and saying, if the world would just repent and turn to Jesus, everything would be okay. But they won't, so we're always going to have troubles, but that's the main thing. So when Paul asked the region, why do I have all these troubles? Why am I being killed <laughs> or being sought to be killed? Why am I on the run? Why do I have all these problems? He comes back to the why and says, Jesus. Jesus. So then when it comes back down to him sitting in Athens, he's like, well, yeah, we have all these troubles because we don't submit to God and to what he says and who Jesus is. That's the trouble. You can try to solve it with any other kind of solution worldly, and it's not wrong to try worldly solutions. If someone's hungry and they need food, you should probably consider feeding them. Sometimes God wants us to be hungry, so be careful, because sometimes hunger can drive us to seek him. And so Paul is troubled, and he's not sitting and waiting, sulking in himself. He's sitting, looking around, going, well, I'm alone, all by myself. I've been run out of two cities my friends are gone, but man, these people don't have a clue what they believe and why they're doing life, and it's just breaking me. So here's what he does. So what does Paul do? So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God, and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. <laughs> Paul is not laying low. Paul goes to the one place that they've tried to kill him twice now, the synagogue. That's the Jewish place of worship in Athens. It's the temporary. A synagogue was a temporary place, the ultimate temple in Jerusalem. And so he's like, well, I'm a Jew, and I know Jews really well, and I know how to communicate with Jews, so I'll go to the synagogue and talk to the Jews. Twice now, he's gone to the synagogues just recently in Thessalonica and Berea and been run out. That's your idea of good? Like, Paul, that's your idea of, like, if you go to the synagogue, you're going to stir up a hornet's nest. You're probably going to stir up trouble. Yeah, I know. But they don't know that Jesus is their Messiah. They're still looking for a Messiah to come, and he's already come, and I'm afraid they don't know, and I've never been in this city, so I want to go see if they know that Jesus has come. Because I would be, I mean, it'd be awful if they didn't know. So I'm going to go, I'm going to worship with them, I'm going to sit with them, and then when it's time, I, you know, I'm going to read all the Psalms with them. I'm going to do all the, I'm going to say the Shema, which is the Old Testament thing they would say about God is God and he's one and all those things. I'm going to do all that and then I'm going to ask him. And do you also know that the Messiah's already come and you might have missed him? Wait, what? Like Paul can't help because of his love and his compassion for people that he just keeps not thinking about himself. Boy, I wish I had that problem. I wish I was so in love with God and so focused on God that I could quit thinking about myself. 
I'm not there yet. I'm better than I used to be, but I am not there yet. And I wish that it wasn't just I could quit thinking about myself so I'm not responsible to anything, but I could quit thinking about myself because I was so concerned for the souls of men and women all around me. Man, I wish that was me on on a regular, every moment basis. God's done a work in me, but I'm not there yet. And it said he reasoned in the synagogue. Paul just didn't go in and say, oh, you need to do this. It said he reasoned with him. So then when they would read a scripture, they would do something. He was in the marketplace. He would try to show them. He would reason with them why Jesus was who he said he was. He goes on. He says this. Then also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him. So Paul's in the marketplace, most likely. They may have been in the synagogue too, but probably this was in the marketplace then some of them, Epicurean Stoic philosophers, argued with him. Some said, what is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Remember, the word Jesus means Yahweh who saves. He was telling the good news to these people in the marketplace that there is no way you can save yourself. There is no way you can have an eternal destiny that doesn't end up badly for you unless you believe it's Yahweh, God Almighty, as the only way to save you. That's what Paul's preaching. That's what Jesus' name means. It means Yahweh who saves, and then his last name, which isn't his last name, Christ means Messiah, which is Savior. So Yahweh who saves, who sent his Savior. There's no other way to be saved. That's what Paul is saying when he's going around, listen, in Athens where there are thousands of other deities and thousands of other gods and hundreds of other temples to gods. This is like 101 how you cause a fight and cause trouble. (laughs) You, You couldn't cause more trouble than this. This is like walking around IU's campus wearing Purdue gear and playing on your iPhone the Purdue fight song in every classroom and everywhere you go and going to the marketplace, going to Kirkwood and walking down and being like, boiler up! And not think people are going to be like, bottles are going to come flying out of Kirkwood at you. This is Paul. He's supposed to be staying out of trouble. (laughs) And Paul is like, I can't help but tell about how my life's been changed. I used to be a terrorist. I used to believe I had all religion figured out. I used to believe in all this. I I get it. And I just can't stand that these people don't know. They 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 at least need a chance to know. They might reject, but at least they need a chance to know before it's too late. And then he has these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. The Epicurean Stoics, just so you know, they're from ancient Greek, Greece. They're, they're ancient Greek philosophers. This has been going hundreds of years. These guys have been passing down the Epicurean and Stoic beliefs. Now, here's the crazy part. Tune in for a minute. Guess what the Epicureans and the Stoics, most of our culture is actually built on Epi, uh, Epicurean and Stoic philosophy. Almost all of our culture is built on it after 2,500 years. Like, these guys came around B.C., I think about three or 400 years before Christ, okay? Here's what the Epicureans and the Stoics believe. The Epicureans, okay, there's the difference. The Stoics cared about virtuous, righteous behavior and living according to nature. We need to save the environment. We need to live at one and in harmony with nature. That's the Stoics. The Epicureans were all about avoiding pain and seeking natural and necessary pleasure. Does this sound remotely familiar to you and where we are in our culture? Like these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were coming to Paul and saying, oh yeah, well if Jesus is this and if God is this, then what about this? What about nature? What about... What about how you feel, Paul? And like he's having the same conversations. They're reasoning and arguing with Paul the same arguments 2,000 years ago that we'd be having today. Paul's having to answer and deal with. So is this God of yours, this Jesus, does he want us to be happy or just want us to be miserable? Well, you're going to be miserable regardless because that's life. Stuff comes at you you can't control. You get to choose whether you're miserable or not and that 
typically is based on what you choose to believe in. And so he goes, so he's, he's having these arguments and Paul doesn't shy away from it. Paul is full in going after these guys and saying, hey, I want to tell you about the good news. That there's better, you ready for this? There's better news than just knowing that your creation and your environment is okay right now. Can I just tell you the worst summer ever in the history of the United States as a country was the summer, and you can go back and look it up, in the 1800s when three volcanoes erupted around the world at the same time, and it was called the summer that never was. And the sun was blocked out and crops all across the United States died because there was no summer. Snow fell in July. You can try to fix your nature and create the environment you want to create all you want, and three volcanoes can ruin your life and starve your family out. Now, does that mean we just don't care about the environment? Well, it's all about pleasure, so I don't really care. I'm just going to poop in the street. No, don't do that. That spreads disease, and that's how the plague spread in Europe, was people used to have chamber pots, they would poop and pee in, and then throw them out their window with people walking by on people. You realize Dave Matthews did this a few years ago. The Dave Matthews band actually dumped their truck's refuse out of their tour bus off the side of a bridge thinking they'd get by with it, and there was a tour tour boat going under it, and they covered the tour boat in 300 pounds of sewage. Don't do that. Like there's a proper way to care for sewage. By the way, the Old Testament tells us we should dig a hole, bury it, have a spade in our digging equipment, and cover it up so nobody gets sick. Like, yes, we need to be concerned about nature, but nature isn't going to save us. And getting our environment, eating all the right foods, and doing everything right isn't going to save us. Because we live in a world full of trouble. And trouble will come. The same on the other side. You think, well, I just have to find pleasure in everything. There are some things that you are not going to find pleasure in. It is not pleasurable, all right, to, to have someone run a sharp object through your foot. You don't go, wow, that feels awesome. If you do, you've got issues. You need counseling. <laughs> like, we live in a world of trouble. And so these guys are arguing. They've been arguing for hundreds of years how much pleasure should we have and how much responsibility should we have. That's been the argument. And Paul's saying, neither. You should just focus on God and what he wants and believe that by focusing on him, he will give you all the pleasure you're looking for and that he will take care of things as you obey him and trust him. That's what Paul is saying. And he's saying, and oh, by the way, you're not gonna live, regardless of whether you believe in pleasure or whether you believe in nature, you're still gonna die. I've got a God that came back from the dead. My God doesn't die. My God stays alive. And he promises that to you forever. So they go on. Verse 19. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, May we learn about this new teaching you're speaking of. For what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these ideas mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Welcome to college. You're not responsible. College isn't going to hold you responsible to accept the new things they're teaching. They really don't care about your finances as long as you got your loans and they get their money. They don't really care about your health unless it affects your schoolwork, your ability to tell and hear and discover the new things they're teaching you. They don't really care. No, your professor's not going to check in to see if you're eating well. Not going to happen unless you start failing. And they're probably, IU's not going to give a rip about you unless you go seek help because you're failing. You go to the health center. That's why we provide you a health center. Go. That's why we provide you. Go. But you've got to seek it out. And so literally, they're just sitting around wanting to learn new stuff all the time, constantly wanting to learn new teachings, and they're saying, Paul, we want you to come. So now they're inviting Paul to be on a bigger stage, which is going to cause more trouble. Like, here, come on. We want you to talk to these other people we know. He goes on, and he says, it sounds strange. We don't know these things that you're saying. By the way, the... Heropagus was the oldest and most famous court 
in Athens going back hundreds of years and had jurisdiction, like legal jurisdiction on moral, religious, and civil matters in Athens. If Paul answers questions wrongly, they can kill him right there on the spot. Because it's the Oropagus. It has authority in Athens. It has jurisdiction. He's being brought before the provost. He's being brought before the dean of students. And saying, this thing you're doing is very strange to us. We're not saying you can't, but we're questioning what's going on here. He goes on and says this. Then Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus. <laughs> He's trying, supposed to be laying low. Paul's like, okay. And he stands out in the middle of everyone. Like, stands out in the middle of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you're extremely religious in every respect. Remember, the Areopagus is the religious center of like how they make decisions. He's like, I see that you guys are very religious. I see that you guys are trying to figure out, is there a God and what he's about? I see that. I can see it all around Athens. You have idols everywhere, and you brought me here because you want to find out about, is there another God? He says, for as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, so Paul had been walking around Rome when he got there, and he's looking at all the objects of worship they have, all the deities, all the idols, all the shrines, all the stuff, and he says, I even found an altar, an altar. So you've got these huge shrines, you've got the Areopagus, you have these big worship centers, you walk by all the churches on campus, and you're like, wow, that's huge, and everything else, and Paul finds an altar. You know what an altar is? It's very small. It's an altar. It's like it's a little thing. He said, I found this little altar on which was inscribed uh, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim that God to you. He said, you are so busy with all your troubles and trying to solve all your problems with making sure you sacrifice to the sun God because the sun is, is burning off all the rain. And then you got to so sacrifice to the rain God because the, the rain's got to come. And, and then you got to sacrifice to the crop God and the fertility God. you got all these gods that you keep trying to please to keep happy and all the ancestors you're trying to keep happy. And I went through your culture and found that there's actually only one God you need to keep happy and that is the one that you don't even know his name. And you don't know who he is. But at some point in your past, you sacrificed to all the other gods and it didn't work. And so somebody had the wisdom enough to say, there must be a God we don't know about. Let's create an altar and sacrifice to him. And whatever was going on, it obviously worked because the altar's still there and people are still making sacrifices on it. That God is the God I'm bringing to you. That's the God I'm telling you. The rest of them are fake and false. That's the real one. And yet it's the smallest altar in your city that you give no credit to. That he is a God who can be known, and I'm telling you, you can know him, but it will cost you everything to know him. That's what Paul says. And he said, I realize that you worship this unknown altar in ignorance. You didn't know why you were doing it. You just had a trouble, and you said, why? Well, there must be a God. You sacrificed to it, and then what was the result? Well, it worked. And so you thought, well, we'll just keep that around just in case. And he's like... That's not how this works. And my God, in his mercy, allowed that to happen because he wants you to know him and wants this moment in your life. Let me ask you, have you ever taken a moment in your life to kind of make a deal with God in your troubles? Where it's like, I've tried everything else. I've read the Bible. I've gone to church. I've tried the whole small group thing. I've tried this. I've tried that. I've tried this. And I still have the trouble so God, I just, I'll make one more altar in my heart. If you just do this thing for me, God, then, then we're good. That's where our hearts run to. And Paul's like, that's not the relationship God wants to have with you. And that's what he gets ready to explain. He goes on and he says this. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. 
He gives you all the nature that you're trying to fix and he gives you all the pleasure you're trying to find. This God controls it all and I'm telling you, this is different. It is different than what you've heard before. But I'm telling you, this is either true or I'm the craziest person you've ever had in the Oropagus. That's what Paul is laying out here. At the expense of his own life, he's already been killed, almost killed multiple times. It's not like he thinks this is gonna go well. <laughs> All the other times, it hasn't gone well. So I'm sure Paul's like, it's not gonna go well, but I gotta say it. <laughs> it's not gonna go, but I gotta tell you. And I'm gonna tell you as nicely and as kindly as I can, and I'm gonna bring it into cultural context, and I'm gonna explain it, explain it as clearly as I can. And he says, there is a God who made everything but you keep chasing gods that you think, well, this God made the sun and this God made this and this God did this and this and this. And the reason we love all these gods that create things that we can manage is because then we can manage it. We can make little shrines. We can control that God to get him to do what he wants. And Paul is saying, the God I'm telling you about will not be controlled. He will not be manipulated. He is God Almighty in charge of it all. Now, what do you think about that? He goes on and he says, from one man, God, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and he has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. Now you can argue with that and say, oh, I don't, that sounds pretty far-fetched. One guy made everything, like God is a creator, made everything. Um, you realize that like science tells us we're all descended from one common human ancestor. So whether you believe in God or not, or whether you believe in Paul's statement, you have to remember when Paul's speaking this, they didn't believe that. They believed that all the gods created people. And all the gods created their people to be at war with their people. And these gods manipulated people for their benefit, right? So they could play with the people like pawns to win and be the better God. And Paul's coming in saying, nope. There's one God descended from one ancestor. This would have been a radical teaching in his day. In our day, we shake our head and like, yeah, Darwin figured that out. Like, no, he didn't. God did. God's the one that said it. Darwin stole it from God and then twisted it. That's what he did. God's been saying it all along. I made one man, one woman, put them together, babies came, kids, here we are. He goes on, he says, and God appoints the nations. He tells them that too. When people had kids, he called them a nation. The nation of Lot, the Moabites, the Edomites, all those, those are the nations. He did this. Look, now why did God do it that way? Why one human, why does he set the boundaries of the nations and they fight against each other? Here it is. Why all this trouble with people? God did this so they might seek him. And perhaps they might reach out and find him though he is not far from each one of us. The reason God creates trouble and there's trouble in relationships and among people is because there's no other way God can get your attention or mine. When things are going well and I have pleasure, I typically am not worshiping God. I'm thinking about how great I am and how I've done everything right and the nap I'm gonna take and the trip I'm gonna go on and all the fun stuff I'm gonna do with how great things are going. But when trouble hits, all of a sudden, my perspective gets a lot different really fast. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's like, God has allowed humans to hurt one another. There's evil in the world. There's all this mess. There's free will and choice. God has allowed all of this, and he's done this so that they might wake up and create an altar to an unknown God, which might lead to someone showing up one day and telling you, I know the God. That's why God does these things. So why do you, there's trouble, why? Because God engineered it this way because there's no other way to get our attention. Now what are you gonna do about it? Paul's like, you've got, that's what he gets ready to tell him. He's like, what are you gonna do? And by the way, God's not far from you. This powerful, almighty God that's over all the other gods, he's not like up there like your gods are saying, you better behave or I'm gonna kill you. You better not mess up my creation. You better not be unhappy. You better not, you better smile all the time because I'm so awesome. That's not the God. The God actually came near us in the person of Jesus Christ and he wants to be near us and wants to have a relationship with us, which would have been a foreign concept to their version of God in Athens. Paul goes on to say this. For in him, that's in Jesus, we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said. Now Paul's quoting poetry. 
of his day. This is what you do when you're at IU in a classroom. This is how you have an argument. This is how you explain. You say, well, based on what Darwin said, we have a common ancestor. I agree with that. God said it before Darwin, Darwin stole it. Yeah, but what do you think about creation? Is it old earth, new earth? No, 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 no. We're not talking about that right now. I'm going to explain to you. God said it before Darwin. How are you going to deal with that? See, it's, it's making good arguments. And Paul says, your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Being God's offspring then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image to be fashioned by human art and imagination. You can't explain God. You can't fashion him and make artwork that, that even comes close to representing the truth about God, which is why God said not to do it. He said, don't make idols. And yet, that's what we do. I mean, so many, when I was growing up, my brother had a picture. I've said this before. My brother, growing up, I was five and I was living in his room and he was a teenager because he was much older than me, okay? And not the brother was here last week, different brother. So I don't want to throw him under the bus. My brother had a picture of Jesus over his bed. White, blue-eyed Jesus, Jesus was not white and blue-eyed. I'm just telling you. The Bible said he had no form. Like the, everyone would have seen a white, blue-eyed guy and been like, that's God. That's not what happened. He came like a normal Jewish guy, probably dark-skinned, brown eyes. Okay, I'm just telling you. Because it said he didn't have a form anybody recognized. If he came white-skinned and blue-eyed, people would be like, we recognize that guy. Okay? So that's Jesus. He had that picture over his bed next to the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders picture of the 70s on the other side. There's your idols. Like you've made Jesus into your idol. Well, when I need Jesus, hey, Jesus. But when I need a woman, hey, cheerleaders. And that's what we do. And God's like, no, take them both down and just look to me and read my word and understand what I've been made known to you. See me in everything, but don't worship those things. Just see that I am all, Paul says. He goes on and says this. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, in other words, the reason we as humans are still here is because God keeps overlooking our ignorance. He hasn't killed us yet for our stupidity. He hasn't let us kill ourselves yet for our ignorance, like eating berries you're not supposed to eat, like you're still alive. You know how much stuff you put in your mouth when you were a kid? It's lucky you're here. One of our kids put a penny in their mouth when we were on a missions trip, right? And they're like turning blue. And we're like, what is going on? And so Susan lays, does the thing and pops out a penny. And we're like, oh my gosh, our daughter almost died. <laughs> like, where'd she find a penny? Like, like on the ground. So again, we'll kill ourselves. And Paul's like, God has looked past your ignorance. Look, and he now commends that all people everywhere to repent. That means repentance is simple. I believe this, I'm going this direction, and I say, wrong. And I turn and go the other direction towards God. That's what repentance means. It's simple. And if God has your eyes and he has your feet moving towards him, you're not sinning. You're moving towards him. And if you look back and do sin, then what do you do? You repent. Be like, no. And you go back to God. That's repentance. It's really simple. And God's like, look, I'm commanding everyone. Remember who is saying that God commands you to the repent. It's a guy that could not have repented from more in his life. A murderer, a terrorist, a religious zealot, a Roman citizen who could have used his citizenship to demand things from Rome and demand that people bow before him when he walks into cities and instead he takes beating and only one time does Paul use, well twice, but one time when he's doing his missionary journeys does Paul use his Roman citizenship and it's after they beat him and almost kill him. So he can go back in the city and tell them about the gospel. He uses the, the Roman citizenship he, he has to make them afraid. They beat the garbage out of him, throw him out of the city. He comes back and he goes, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. They're like, oh, no. Because if you beat a Roman citizen, you've got Rome now on your back and you're in trouble because you didn't take them through the court process. And now they are panicked. And Paul says, don't worry, I want to forgive you. So does my God. And he shares the gospel with everyone. 
Paul doesn't walk around using all these things to his advantage. He says, I've repented of all that. Our focus is on Jesus. Now, are there things I can use in my past? Absolutely. But I'm not going back to them to find my pleasure, my hope, or to fix my troubles and fix my problems. I'm moving forward. Then he says, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man, Jesus, he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. That Jesus is going to come back one day to deal with sin and unrighteousness and the mess of our world. And he says that Jesus paid the price that we should have to pay so we don't have to be scared of that day. If we know him, he promises we will be resurrected with him and have eternity and eternal life in a new body and one day a new earth. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what we looked at in our last series in Zephaniah. So there is trouble. Well, why is there trouble? Because there needs to be justice. Why does there need to be justice? Because we're so wicked and somebody needed to pay the price. So what do we do with that? Well, then we trust Jesus to pay the price on our behalf. And then we become people that tell people about the decision we've made. And we are willing to pay the price like Paul did so that they might know about him. John 16, this is what Jesus says. He's speaking to his followers at the end of his life before he's crucified and resurrected. He said, look, I've told you these things. That's telling them everything about his purpose of ministry. So that you, look at this, so that in me you may have peace, pleasure, joy. You will have suffering. Wait, how do we have peace and pleasure and still, because you don't get bad, it's life. In this world, be courageous. I've conquered the world. Be courageous. How courageous was Paul? Read Acts sometime and look at the courage of Paul. He wasn't courageous because he was some kind of really strong, buff, you know, worked out, awesome dude. He actually was, his nickname was Shorty probably. And he preached too long and made a guy fall out of a window asleep and die and had to bring him back to life because he was a terrible preacher. The Bible says that, not me. And Paul says, Jesus says, I want you to be courageous and know that the world's already been conquered, just not yet, not fully yet. Jesus spoke these things, then he looked up into heaven. He didn't fashion an idol. He didn't go make an altar. He just looked up and said, God, I know you're near. Hello, Father. And he said, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. In other words, I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this to fulfill the purpose of all eternity. And it's not about me. It's not about my troubles. It's not about my glory. It's about the glory of the Godhead that goes all across the universe. He says, for you gave him authority over all flesh. Look at this. So that he may give eternal life to all you have given him. He said, the reason I'm going through this is because You gave me the authority to give my life for them. And then he says, this is eternal life. Let me ask you, you may have a lot of troubles in life. We all do. What about the trouble of what happens after you die? The majority, over 90% of people in the world believe in an afterlife. The question is, what do you believe about it? Jesus says, here's what you should believe. This is eternal life that they know you, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the only true God and the, only, and the one you have sent, that's me, Jesus Christ, Yahweh who saves, who is the Messiah everyone's looking for. Jesus says, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. What troubles you? How about you just complete the work God's told you to do for today? Each day has enough trouble of its own. Just do the work God's told you to do today. And he says, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus tells us this. When he was troubled and someone was troubled about how they get eternal life, they were troubled about how to live this life and what laws to obey. So you've got the Epicureans and the Stoic. The last answer Jesus gave was more of a Stoic answer. How do you find pleasure and joy in the world? Glory, all those things that are feeling things. Now this gets real specific to the Epicurean doing the right thing. In Matthew 22, a Pharisee like Paul asks 
Jesus this question, teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? There were almost 700 laws in the Old Testament. Jesus said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. That's what Paul did. Paul committed his life to loving his God and surrendered to Jesus as the Messiah that God had sent. And when he was in trouble, and the trouble that bothered him the most was the fact that other people didn't know God. And it troubled him to the point where he was willing to be drug in front of the dean of students, drug in front of the Agropagus, and give an account of his life. And Jesus says, it's really simple, love God and love people. And sometimes loving people means telling them the truth and they beat the tar out of you and drag you out of the city because they don't want to hear it. But you got to love them enough to tell them. Don't let them continue in their addiction and in their brokenness and in their mess. And Paul did that his whole life. As Paul wraps up, here's the result. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the dead is what separates Christianity from every every other religion. If Jesus was not resurrected, then our religion is a joke. It just is. Christianity is a religion that says our religious leader actually brought himself back to life and gave us grace. Christianity is the only religion that gives grace. That means you can't work for it. You can't please God enough to outweigh your bads. God just has to grant you his favor because Jesus covered over all the bad and buried it and then brought life to your dead body. Christianity is the only religion that leaves you powerless to save yourself or create any way to make a deal with God. Only one. All the other religions are about making a deal. And religious leaders love making deals because they can take money, time, and anything else they want to extort from you. God's like, I'm not in the deal-making business. I get all of you or nothing, your choice. Oh, and by the way, if you don't make the deal, I'm still going to get all of you when the end comes. He looks and he says, look at this. When they heard about the resurrection, they began to ridicule him. Here it goes again. He's been beaten in Thessalonica and run out of town and run out of town. But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. Then Paul left their presence. However, some men joined him and believed, including Dionysus, the Eurypagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. He preaches and he's ridiculed. Trouble came. Made fun of. What a joke this guy is. A little short guy. All alone. Who is this guy? But there were some that were kind of like, I don't know, that sounds different. And there were others who said, we've been looking for that our whole lives. And we're in. If this is true, we're in. We surrender. Let me ask you this morning. What troubles you? Will you respond like Paul? A surrendered life troubled by people not knowing the Lord? Will you respond like those that ridicule and you'll ridicule God and you'll ridicule others for your troubles? Will you respond and right now and kind of be like, well, I don't know about this, but I'm still willing to kind of lean in to this. Are you ready to fully commit knowing that you've been separated from God and he is now offering you a relationship? What troubles you? Can I just tell you there's a God that says, I get it. I know why the troubles exist and they're not going to go away, but I can promise you that I will give you courage and I will walk you through them. And I promise you there's going to come a day when there's no more troubles, no more tears, no more crying, nothing. And it'll be worth every decision you made to stop going that way and repent and go that way. Every time you do that, it'll be worth it, I promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for Paul's example in Athens. Lord, I thank you for your heart that was in Paul, that gave him a heart for others around him, that when he saw the masses and saw their deception, he couldn't help but his heart break that they didn't know who you were. Father, I pray this morning if there's anyone here who is struggling with troubles, because we all have them, I pray that they would lay them at your feet. 
and that they wouldn't ridicule, Lord, they would come before you and they would say, you know what, I, I surrender, I'm done, like the people that did. And for those who may be struggling and not knowing, and maybe this is the first time, like these, these people at the Oropagus, the first time they'd ever heard this message, Lord, I pray that they wouldn't walk out of here and forget this message. I pray they would grapple with, wow, what is this and is this true? And they would actually do some research. And Lord, I pray you would reveal yourself to them so they might come to know you. And Lord, if there is someone here this morning who needs to just surrender their life, they want to repent, they want to stop going one direction and say, wow, I've been looking for this God my whole life, just like there were some on this very day that heard it the first time. Lord, I pray that right now they would just surrender and they'd say, I'm done. Jesus, you are who you say you are. I surrender my life to you. Make me who you want me to be because I can't deal with my troubles. I can't deal with my sin in the past. I can't deal with the future that's coming. And so I surrender to you. And Lord, I pray that if they pray that, that they would get around someone else, just like these people got with Paul. They didn't just pray the prayer and wander off. They knew they needed continued discipleship and teaching to help them understand the decision they made. So I pray that this morning for those who might be viewing online or those who are in this room. And Lord, I also wanna take a moment and celebrate the fact that in this room, there are a lot of Pauls. <laughs> that yesterday we had a group of students that went out on campus and Lord, they were concerned about the hearts of other students who don't know you. And they looked around and they wrote your message of your gathering on sidewalks and they met people and talked to them. And so I praise you that you are raising up a generation of Pauls with the courage to take your word out to the ends of the earth. And would we each do that in our own place? We pray in your name.